Effective communication is important because it helps identify your place in business decisions and personal decisions. Welcome to Communication Matters with Deborah Malnix. Anywhere you go, with everything you do, wherever you live, and whoever you know, communication matters. Now, here's your host, Deborah Malnix. Hello, everyone. My name is Deborah Malnix, and I am the host of Communication Matters, a program that deals with the importance of communication, not only in business, but in everyday life. Nothing can begin without communication. Today, we have a very special guest on our show, Diane Burko. Diane works at the intersection of art and science and environment with an artistic practice that is devoted to bringing the challenges of climate change to light. Diane spent over four decades exploring monumental and geographical phenomena in a wide range of media, from painting to photography to video. She began devoting herself exclusively to exploring environmental issues, and her artwork reflects this decision. Diane has integrated her experiences of exploration and interaction with scientists in their labs, and has shown and received research data that has resolved into captivating climate-conscious work that encourages critical thinking about the impact we, as humans, are having on our environment. Diane has spoken on climate-conscious subjects around the world and was honored recently with one of her environmentally-inspired paintings being hung at the Royal Academy Summer Exhibition in London, June 21st to August 21st, 2022. That gives all of our audience an opportunity to fly to London to see some of Diane's work. Diane, welcome to the show. It is a real pleasure to have you on the show and an honor. I am familiar with your work and and its subject matter, and I can only tell our audience that it is dramatic and powerful and really relates to what is happening with climate today. Welcome. Well, thank you, Deborah, and thank you for that lovely introduction. I think you get what I do, so I really appreciate that. Well, tell the audience a little bit about what you do so they understand your work a little bit more. Your work is so visual and it is so powerful that in in talking about it, it doesn't do it justice. But explain to our audience what brought you to your realm of painting and why you decided to focus so heavily within the environmental range. Okay, well, um, I've been a painter all my life, or I should say an artist. I was a landscape painter. I guess you could say I've always painted the landscape, although, you know, I went to art school and did the usual, the figure and perspective and everything that one learns in undergraduate with my MFA training. But um, I kind of concentrated on the landscape. And I think because it allowed me to be a freer artist, if I was going to do the figure sitting on a chair, I had to be very particular about a figure in space, unless I was deep in corner or someone like that. So I kind of immediately went towards the landscape as a very abstract way to make a painting because it is, you know, there are large areas of color. There is perspective, of course, in space. And I grew up and took my training in the early 70s. So I was influenced by abstract expressionism, uh, love the French uh, painters, impressionists, and also the American, you know, the, the Hudson River School and, and, and all of that. So landscape 
really captivated me as a subject matter. But, you know, I think another reason why landscape was important was because I didn't grow up in a landscape. I grew up in a city. I grew up in Brooklyn uh, in an apartment building and uh, not in what you call wide open spaces. So the first time that, you know, I was able to to go to the Catskills or look at the country, it, it just turned me on. Nature turned me on. And then after graduating from, from graduate school, I, I went and saw the Grand Canyon. That was like such a colossal thing to see for a girl from Brooklyn. So, so it was the landscape. That was it. I was committed. Uh, but you, you ask how I came to do what I'm doing now. Well, those are the roots. It started with the landscape. And then fast forward from last century to this century, climate change. You know, it's in the air. It became more and more important. Of course, it certainly was important last century, 1990, I think it was 1989, James Hansen spoke to Congress and he used the word, not climate change at that point in time, he used the word global warming. But to be more politically correct, it changed to climate change. So I was aware of it. And there was kind of a pivotal moment for me, an aha kind of time in my life when it just hit me out of the blue. And it happened because I was looking at a painting that I did in 1976. Now, I was looking at it in an exhibition that happened in 2006. So being a woman, I think there's some of your audience can identify with this. I was thinking on many levels at the same time, which a lot of us do. So I'm walking through the museum, the Michener Museum. I had a show there. I'm talking to the audience about the, the, the whole show. It was about volcanoes and Iceland. And even though it was a current show about my volcano project, there happened to be one large painting from my past in the 70s when I was painting blue and white Himalayas and Alpine scenes. And I looked at this one painting. It was a huge acrylic painting. I think it must have been about, I don't know, uh, eight feet by nine feet. And I looked at the snow. And while I was looking at the snow, I was also thinking that it was 30 years ago. And that made me think about all the other things. I'm you know, 30 years uh, older than I was in 1976. But I saw the snow and for some reason, my epiphany was, is the snow there? You know, what you're saying is so interesting because I always tell our audience that communication happens on many levels. Mm. It's not just verbal. It's body language. It's how you engage with someone. It's your facial expression. And art, it is really a carrier of communication that is not verbal. And when you had mentioned that you were just struck by it, that it, it spoke to you. Mm -hmm. And that expression is used so often when people look at art. Mm. It just spoke to me. It just, I I looked at it and I I just felt that I connected with it. And I'm always emphasizing that it's just not verbal that makes communications. It's how we see things. It's how things see us. It's how we look at things. And that was a beautiful description of how it talked to you. Yeah, that's funny because I never think of my own paintings talking to me. I think (laughs) I'm talking to everybody else. But so So many people, so many people say that about art when they see it or a piece of sculpture or anything that they think is beautiful. It just talked to me. And at first it sounds strange because you're thinking, 
how could how could a sculpture talk to you? It's you know mm-hmm. metal. It's mm-hmm. it's it's not it's not alive, but it touches something that we have. I mean, for example, you talked about snow in the mountains, mm-hmm. and I think when we see those kinds of natural landscapes, it speaks to us about the beauty that's all around us, but we might not necessarily focus on. And when you see it in a painting, it touches a lot of the emotions we have. So I think one of the things that is so important to remember is that communication is not just verbal. And I think art is a perfect example of that. It's a pictorial communication about our world and what is going on. Mm-hmm. It's, and senses. Course, it's through the senses rather than through the narrative. Yes. Through the word. Yeah. Yes. And that's true of music, too. You know, you can hear something, you know, and it, it, it sparks a memory, for instance. Right. Mm-hmm. So you're absolutely right. And. I think that whole concept that you're bringing up, Deborah, is something that I grabbed onto when I made this decision in 2006 to focus on climate change. Because what I said to myself is, I'm painting beautiful paintings. Okay, yeah, I know that. Uh, They're big, they're impressive, you know, they're compelling. But am I doing enough about the issue? There's an issue out there. Our climate is being challenged, you know. I mean, I should say our our climate is challenging our planet. And I'm a political person. I'm a political animal. I'm a child of the 60s. I'm a feminist. And here I am, a landscape painter. And what am I doing? So I, I really was at a loss, but it got me thinking. And I love to be challenged. I'm an artist that is sort of, um, I don't have a signature a signature style, as they say in the art world. My art, my work changes and it changes because I get stimulated by different things and I get bored by doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. So here I am as a landscape painter trying to figure out how can I do something about this issue? Yeah. How right. can I you know, politically do something? Well, of course, I could march. I could do lots of things that other people do. But who am I? I'm an artist. So how do I, through my own language, authentically figure out what to do? So it took me a few years. I mean, I made paintings. But what I did is I went back to those original images that I used in the 70s. And I started with a book that was all about the Matterhorn. Ironically, I think the book was called Men and the Matterhorn. (laughs) It was all about climbing. And I took those images And I made like a dozen 24 by 24 inch paintings of the Matterhorn. And I arranged them in a grid. And I said, there it is. People are looking at all that snow. Matterhorn is this iconic image, right? It's everywhere. It's in Disneyland. And it's a universal language. I mean, no matter where you look at it in any country at any time. Right. But my thinking was, well, if they see that, they're going to think about snow. And I had a friend, an artist friend of mine, visiting from New York. We did studio visits to each other all the time. And I told her my idea. I said, what do you think? Isn't this good? And she looked at me. She's a very close friend, tells me the truth. And she goes, wow, they're gorgeous paintings, Diane. So people are going to look at them and they're going to see beautiful paintings. They're not going to see what you see. And I argued with her. I said, well, wait a minute. Think about deer. You know, when I see deer, I don't think of Bambi. I think of a rat with horns, right? Because I'm a gardener. She didn't buy that. She she said, well, I don't know. I think you have to go deeper. And she was right. And she gave me the impetus to really go deeper. And what I did is I started going on the Internet. I started reading more. 
And I discovered a whole way of talking about the landscape Mm -hmm. through what they call repeat imaging. And this is what geologists and glaciologists use. What does that mean? It means these glaciologists, ever since there was photography, will set up a camera on a tripod and they will photograph a glacier. Then the next year, they photograph it again. Same spot, same time of year. And they've been doing this for decades. What you're really talking about, and I love this, is the communication of the landscape to you and what they're saying and how each year you went back and had a little conversation with it and took a photo. And that conversation changes over the years. I I didn't take those photos, Deb. I mean, this is history. I found a whole trove of them. Okay. All right. But you brought it together. You brought the message together. These were photographs from the 30s, from the 20s. And one was about Grinnell Glacier in, in Glacier National Park. Glacier National Park was discovered, established, I think, the 19th century. And why do they call it Glacier National Park? It had 150 glaciers in Montana. Guess what? There are 25 left now. And imagine if you saw images, which I did, photographs of the way they look up to now. And I made a series of paintings about that. That's what I love about your work is and I hear people say this about your work, is that it's a language that speaks to them and it's shocking sometimes because of what they're seeing. So in, in essence, they are being talked to by the imagery and they can see that it's different. And as time passes, it gets more and more severe. So it's, yeah. it's like a language that transcends the time and it yeah. keeps telling its message to whomever looks at it whenever. And it's, right. I'll tell you what, Lynn, looking yeah. at some of your art, it's really, and I'm going to use this word with some liberalism, shocking the differences. <laughs> well, that's okay. Yeah, no, no, that series of paintings was just doing that and it was communicating change. And again, it takes a few minutes to figure it out as a viewer. I remember a friend of mine coming to my studio when I was just starting this series and she looked at them and she said, oh, is that summer and winter? She didn't get it. Mm -hmm. I said, no, no. But, you know, when you see a series of paintings in an exhibition, in a gallery or in a museum where there are labels, where there's wall text, all of a sudden it hits you and it might hit you unconsciously. Do you feel that over the years of you have as you have done this more often, that the message becomes clearer to more people? Or do you find that there are just certain people who get the message who understand it, and others just have a difficult time. They just look at them as paintings, not necessarily conveyors of important information. You know, there's two levels of questions there. I mean, they're always, you know, climate deniers, although there are less of those today than ever before because they've all been hit with storms and floods and heat waves. When they come to an exhibition, I think they get it. I mean, that's the feedback that I get. I recently had a a major exhibition at the American University Museum in D.C. It ran for from August through December of last year. And because of COVID, it was only the museum was only open like Fridays through Sundays. And the director asked me, would you come down and be around for visitors a few of those weekends? And I did. And it was very gratifying to me because People spoke to me. I spoke to them. And as they walked through this exhibition, which was 103 pieces, it included videos, it included photography, 
And it included work of mine, I think, from 2002 to 2021. So it was a whole range. And that range covered lots of topics. It wasn't just glaciers. It was also coral reefs. Um, It was the beginning of the project I'm doing now on the Amazon rainforest. So there was a lot going on. And I think they got it. They got it because of what I said before. There were labels. There was wall text and there was a catalog. So mm-hmm. all those, and, and, and actually when you walked in, I forgot that part. They had a video of me in all these different environments. You know, I've been to the Arctic and the Antarctic and to American Samoa, et cetera, et cetera. So they saw the artist in situ. So all that set it up and they kind of, they did get it. I think they did. And that's gratifying because why, you know, why else am I doing this? Well, because I have to, because I'm an artist, but I also, part of my- You're communicating. You're a communicator. Yeah. And you're communicating a very important message. Totally. For me, it is because this issue is so crucial. Public engagement is part of what I do. I like to think, although sometimes I'm so disappointed that we are evolving into smarter creatures, but sometimes I think- not happening. But I would like to think that as you continue to produce your work, which is so environmentally strong, people can look at it and immediately see a message. But then I think there are some people who may never get the message. It's, it's hard to be hopeful, but one has to be, you know, because there's just so many. I mean, climate change should not be a political issue. But it is today a- anything can be a political issue. Oh, you said it, girl. You said it. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Do you find that when you paint, you yourself get frustrated? Or I would think that what you see with a vision, the destruction that we as humans are causing, that it just sometimes wears you down. Not when I'm painting, no, no. No? Okay. I'm in my studio. That's the best time of my life. I mean, I get into, I mean, I, I get ideas and the ideas come from visual information, but also from my research mm-hmm. and somehow, and also from my visiting on site, visiting labs, speaking to scientists, going to conferences. And all that gets mixed together in a kind of magical mixture in my head, I guess, so that it all expresses itself in the work that I do. And when I'm in the studio doing it, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in the zone, as they say. So those, you know, even the whole politics and my whole reasoning goes out the window. That happens like beforehand and afterwards when I look at the paintings. But while I'm making them, no, that's, 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 the, best part of, that's the best part of my art career. Okay. Let me ask you a question. What would you say one of the most important things that you have learned in your career evolving and you concentrating on the environmental impact we are making in the world, in the country? What was one of the most interesting or one of the most important things you learned as an artist, as an individual, as a person? that has really made an impact in your life? That's a, that's a big question. Actually, I've learned to be a better communicator by listening. I've learned to listen more than I used to when I was younger. Because, you know, when you're younger, you think- That's you're a big more. lesson, actually. And some it's people never point. learn it. Some people just <laughs> go right on talking. Right. And, you know, when you asked me before about people doubting or do they get it, it's not so much when they're going through the work. Uh, although I've had those, but it's more when I'm involved in panels and public engagement activities. 
And I should say that at this point in my life, I won't have an exhibition unless the museum or the gallery or the university guarantees public programming. That's part of my whole shtick to talk about the environment. And I remember having one of these in a Jersey, I can't remember the name of the university or the college, it'll come to me in a minute. And we had this show and the museum, the gallery director agreed that we would do a panel and we coordinated with their environmental program. And the panel was great. We had the opening the night before and the next morning was this panel. And at the opening, there was this young man, I think uh, he was from Russia, and he challenged me. He said, well, you know, I don't believe in this. And if you listen to this physicist that I know, and he was, you know, full of himself and smart because he was young and he thought he knew everything. I didn't argue with him. See, this is this is a lesson. Uh, I learned that. I mean, I was a college professor. Eventually, you learn how to deal with your students. I listened carefully. I said, well, you're making some good points, but you know, you should ask these questions tomorrow at the panel. If you could come to the panel, we're going to have some scientists there. There's going to be a guy from NOAA. And I, I think maybe we could get to the bottom of this. And he liked that. You know, I didn't brush him off. Mm-hmm. I didn't say he was crazy. And he came and I don't even remember what the questions were, but he went away with a lot more knowledge. And those guys put him in his place very gently. So there you go. That's an example of listening and learning. (laughs) And those are things that, you know, some people can pick up easily through life and some people never do. Let me ask you another question. What is one of the best pieces of advice you have ever received from either a professional, Mm -hmm. someone in your in your work arena, someone personally or a friend that you feel has really given you an ability to be productive in your work, to be successful in what you do? Gosh, you know, having I'm in my 70s now, so there have been a lots of people that have really impacted me in, in that way over the years. So I, maybe I can think of a string of advice. <laughs> I remember Think about writer's block or artist block. And I remember talking to a woman named Miriam Shapiro, one of the founders of the feminist art movement. And she's now passed away. And she was older than me. And, you know, I, I, we were talking about that. And I think I had just stopped doing one kind of work and I was going into another topic. I was having trouble. And she said, you know, it doesn't matter that you can't figure out what you're doing in the studio just get into the studio, sweep the floor. And that was great because that's when your ideas happen. Right. It's the when you least suspect them. And I give that advice to other students, the idea that just get there, just show up. And if you show up and it still happens to me and now I know what I'm doing, I think, but you can hey, sweep the I floor material. I could say, Oh, I never thought of that before. And then something else will happen because art, if it's really, if you're really in the zone, it's a, it's a, it's discovery. It's a, it's, it's a language. Great. It's a language. Yeah, yeah. And, and you just learn you. from, you know, everything around you. So that was one bit of advice. Another bit of advice was shut your mouth and listen. <laughs> <laughs> if only more people took that advice seriously, that would be wonderful. <laughs> I think one of the things that I've always loved about, about you was your openness to new ideas and new, new ways of doing things. But your art always, people talk about it speaking to them. And one of the things that I'd like to tell my audience is, to realize that how you hold your body, how you greet someone, the smile on your face, 
They're all forms of communication. And the more familiar we are with the many different types of communication that are out there, the more successful we can be as an individual, as well as a friend, a career person, a mother, a partner. And I think that don't limit yourself to verbal communication. Open the broad picture and use your body language, use your expression, use how you enter a room, because those are all very, very important forms of communication. And that is what I've loved about your paintings. What I hear so many people say is, I just feel so close to this painting. I I feel that it really speaks to me. I feel that it's telling me help. Hmm. And yeah, well, it, it has to do, I think, a lot with scale. You know, I make very large. This painting that's at the London, <clears throat> the Royal Academy in London is eight feet by 15 feet. It's a mm-hmm. big painting, you know, so you get enveloped by it. I think people have this emotional response to images in general because it, it's emotional. I mean, you're like you said earlier, it's 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 on this way of a, a different wavelength. But, you know, when you talk, Deborah, about communication, and how you handle your body. I thought of another bit of advice I got from a professor very early in in my training. And it wasn't like he told me anything, but he kind of demonstrated it. And what he did is, you know, I'm, you can see I'm animated. I talk quickly. I'm from New York. So of course I talk quickly, but what he taught me was pacing and volume. And Hmm. what he did is sometimes he would talk this quietly. And you know what that made students do? It made them listen. They pay attention, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's very interesting. Yes. And the, and the immediate reaction to having someone listen is you think you speak loudly and you speak forcefully and you speak strongly. And you just demonstrated a way of communicating that is quiet and slow. <laughs> You can change it. I mean, yes. and that was the other thing. And I would talk to students about their painting that way. Some paintings were very like a checkerboard. You know, they're very mm-hmm. redundant. They were boring. And I used to then use my sound. I would go, if I spoke to you in the same way. Boring, right? But if I go up, then I go down and I emphasize. So I, I was kind of using sound and you know, a verbal language to communicate what you can do in, in, in a painting, in, in a visual language. I think this has been an extraordinarily interesting segment for our audience because I think it opened their eyes to communication on different levels. Because this is a show about communications and opening up your vision to the many ways we communicate, not just verbally, but there are many ways we communicate as, as individuals. Um, We're coming to almost the closure of our our program today, and I hope that our audience today will begin to practice and be aware of communication on these levels. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, I always like to, as we're coming to the end of our program, to ask our guests, what is one question you wish I had asked you but didn't? because I like to give them the opportunity to answer that one question. So you don't go out and say, oh, I wish she asked me this, or if only she had mentioned this. Do you wow, have- well, Deborah, you've done a really good job covering <laughs> so much. I don't know where I'd begin. I mean, uh, one question, well, people sometimes ask me when I do these interviews, how long does it take you to do a painting? Mm-hmm. You know, how long does it take you to do this painting? And I have a very smart aleck answer, which is, 
50 years. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so true because everything you do is based on what you've it's learned. Cumulative. You've it's cumulative. Yes, it's, it's really wonderful. Now, I always also ask my guests, if someone wanted to get in touch with you, where oh, please do. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, what I'd like you to do then is tell them where they could reach you. I always like the, the person I have as a guest to make sure that it's okay. Where can they actually reach you? Well, um, I'm on Instagram, so you can DM me. And I have a website, of course. And it's my name, D-I-A-N-E-B-U-R-K-O. So that would be the best way. And I invite people to go to the website just because they'll see what I do. Yes. And again, sure. today's our guest was Diane, D-I-A-N-E, Burko, B-U-R-K-O, <laughs> a wonderfully talented artist who is concentrating within the environmental spectrum and the causes and the effects of what we as humans are creating within our environment. It's a very relevant issue today, probably more than ever because of the overproduction of land and the killing off of our wildlife and, and so many other things. So we hope that you can be involved. We hope that you did enjoy the many forms that communication takes. Is there anything you'd like to add to our audience before we close for this session? Or do you think we covered most everything? We did. I guess the only advice I'd give the audience who cares about the environment is make sure you vote. Make sure you vote for people who believe that we have to do something and have a responsibility to our children and our grandchildren and their grandchildren. I think there's a little bit of a lesson here for, for those who are involved in communication. There are many, many ways to communicate. So we hope that this particular session has inspired you to find a variety of ways that you can, too, express yourself in different ways. I thank everyone for listening and to join us again soon when we will have another podcast on communication. Diane, I'd like to thank you for a very, very interesting perspective and a very honest evaluation of how you came to where you are today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, Deborah. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. All right. Goodbye, everyone. We'll be back again soon with, with another session. Thank you for joining us today. Communication Matters can be heard on the Voice America Business Channel. Check and listen for new shows every week. Until our next program, keep the communication going.